The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. There was a colonel in the military, and he had a very difficult situation on his hands. He was going to be retiring within a couple years, but there in his country, there were some unfinished business. He was, um, in a, he was in the military in a country in South America, and there was some unfinished business. And it was hard for him to retire with that not resolved. There was a, a terrorist group that lived in the rural areas, in the jungle areas, and they were kidnapping particular individuals, especially military personnel, to hold hostage to try and have political leverage. And some of these prisoners had been kept hostage in these jungles, had been kept hostage for years. And he couldn't imagine retiring and going off to to rest while there was unfinished business with some of his soldiers. He couldn't imagine doing that. And so he needed to come up with a creative solution because they wanted to rescue these, these men, but with this particular terrorist group, if they caught any, any whiff of a rescue attempt, they would start executing hostages. And so he had to come up with a creative solution because they were going to start moving in, and he needed those hostages to be ready to make a run for it. And he needed for some of them to just have the courage to try to escape and just know that there was help nearby. And if nothing else, he just needed to give them hope to hold on a little longer. But if he sent them a message and the captors heard it, they know it would be bad news for the, for the prisoners. So he had a friend. The friend was successful in, the, uh, marketing, uh, in a marketing agency, for an ad, worked for an ad agency. And he was from his country, but he lived here in Miami. And so he called his friend, explained the situation, says, I need a creative solution. Can you help me think of a solution? I need to get a secret encoded message that only the captives, the hostages, will understand to give them hope, to let them know that rescue's coming. They just need to hold on. And if they can, make a break for it. He said, wow, that's a tall order. Man, one that the captors don't pick up on? Yeah, the captors cannot pick up on it. So they met together. They got a couple other minds in the room, and they came up with this solution. A song. They would write a song and they would release that song. It'd be a modern pop song, but they would write the song. The lyrics would have suggestive language that might be overlooked by the public, but may get the attention of you are a hostage. And then during an instrumental, this is what they were going to do. They were going to embed in the music a Morse code. Because the captives were military personnel and were trained in Morse code. And if they could embed that Morse code in there, it might go over the captors' heads, but the captives, being in the military, might be like, wait, I think I know that. And so they put a song together. They wrote a song, and they worked on the Morse code. They got it. It had to be a certain length. It had to be a certain uh, speed. And it had to be almost undetectable unless you were listening to it. They put together the song and they released it through these radio stations that were in that rural jungle part of the country. They estimate that like 130 radio stations played it and upwards of 3 million people heard the song. But it was a gamble. It was a gamble because the captors couldn't hear it. But it worked. 
I want to tell you what happened, but before I tell you what happened, I want you to see the song. I want you to hear it, and I want you to hear the translation of both the words and the Morse code. Check out this song. I feel like we should clap for that song. That was amazing. They released the song. It was played all over that area. And eventually, uh, some of the captives made a break for it. And they were rescued. Others held out hope and were eventually rescued. And as they were interviewing them afterwards, they described what had happened in the camps. And they said, while some of the the captors are listening to the radio, and as they hear the song over and over, they would have their guards just walking around singing the song right outside (laughs) where they were, just singing it. Whereas the captives, all it took was one of the military personnel to be like, wait a minute, is that what I think it is? And they listen to it, and then they wait for it to come on the radio, and they're like, hey, listen to this. And they would listen to it, and they would finally got the message, hey, there have been some that have already been rescued. We're not far. You're next. Just hold out. Don't lose hope. And they would pass that message through all the other captors. And that one song was the key to offering those who are captive hope and eventually freedom. Now, I tell you that song, I'll tell you about the story about that song. Because what we've been studying this past week is we've been studying a song. A song written by probably King David, so a thousand years before Jesus was born. And it's a song that's part of the book of Psalms. And it's a part of the Psalms that they would sing at Passover. So you know how like at Christmas time, we have songs that we sing every Christmas. Like there's just songs that we don't really sing throughout the year, but then Christmas comes and we remember those. And there's some that have been around for generations, but it's just one of those Christmas songs. This section of the, of the Psalms in the Old Testament, uh, this, they would sing every Passover. So these songs would be singing Passover week for generation. They, you could hear them all over Jerusalem. And as they're singing all over Jerusalem, there is something in that song from a thousand years before when it was written. And it's not a hidden code, but it was something intentionally embedded in that psalm that didn't make full sense until one Passover, one in particular. Jesus had been in his ministry for three years. They started to know about who Jesus was. They talking about his miracles, talking about his teachings. And one Passover celebration, they celebrated as he entered in. He was teaching all over Jerusalem and everyone was talking about Jesus. You could hear the name Jesus reverberating 
all throughout Jerusalem. They're talking about Jesus here. They're talking about Jesus here. They're talking about Jesus. You can hear the name Jesus, although in, in the ancient Hebrew, we've translated into the English word Jesus. In the ancient Hebrew, it's the name Yeshua. You can hear the name Yeshua being talked about. Yeshua was teaching in the temple. Yeshua came riding in on a donkey. Yeshua, I put a branch down before Yeshua. They're talking about Yeshua, Yeshua. You can hear them all over. But there was a song that was sung all over Jerusalem in that time. It was one of the Passover songs. It was part of that, part of the Psalms. It was Psalm 113 to 118. And 118 was that crescendo song at Psalm. And that Psalm 118, you could be hearing, sung all over Jerusalem. It was almost like the soundtrack for that special Holy Week, that Passion Week. And I want you to see what was embedded in there from a thousand years before. Because it doesn't just change everything on that one particular year. It changes everything in your life and my life too. And regardless of what you're walking through right now, I think this is an important message that God embedded in this psalm for you. I want you to open in your Bible or Bible app to Psalms 118. This psalm, we read it a little bit earlier in our service. This psalm begins with the, with the phrase, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The psalm then closes with the exact same phrase. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. It's a command to God's people. Give thanks to the Lord. He is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Book ending this song, this psalm, is the phrase, we must give thanks to the Lord because he is good. That's a fact. He is good. And his love, his steadfast love endures forever. It's eternal. His steadfast love never throttles back. It never wanes. It never strays. It never lessens. His steadfast love is over his people, over us, constantly, thoroughly, fully, and that never changes. This is the beginning and the end of this psalm. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to jump down to verse 19. We've been walking through this psalm all week, but I want you to jump down to verse 19. Here's what it says. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Now let's just pause there for a second. The psalmist, probably David, as he's writing this song, he's saying, open the gates that I can walk through and I'll give thanks to the Lord that I'm walking through those gates. What are the gates that he's talking about? Is he talking about the gates to Jerusalem? Is he talking about the gates to his palace? Is he, what, what kind of gates is he talking about? He's actually talking about, if you read through the psalm, he's talking about the gates to the temple. You get the sense of a procession moving through and into the temple to bring their sacrifice, their Passover sacrifice to God. So he's talking about, open the gates of the temple that I can walk through, and then the fact that I can walk through, I'll give thanks to the Lord. And that might seem like just a simple phrase, like as if he's writing, hey, open the doors of the church. Because I'd love to come into the church and praise the Lord. It might just seem like a, a simple phrase like that, but remember the context of the temple is a little bit different. 
Let me show you a model of the ancient temple because I want you to see the gates that he's talking about. Um, here's a, a beautiful rendering of what um, the temple in Jesus' day would have looked like. And you see this rectangular, rectangle here is the, the sanctuary. You see these walls. It looks almost like a fortress all the way around the sanctuary. You see to the right of the sanctuary, there's this porch. To the left of the sanctuary this way, there's the rest of the porch, be a huge gathering area. But I want you to look at one small detail. Just outside those fortress walls, you can see it on the right, on the left, you can also see it uh, in the foreground a little bit. If you look just outside those walls, you can see a line running down on either side. You see a small fence before you get to those fortress walls. Do you see that, that line right there? That fence had an inscription on it. It had signs all along that fence. And the, in fact, archaeologists, we know about it from the descriptions of the temple, but archaeologists have actually found some of the ancient tablets that were the inscription all along the fence. Here's an example of one that's in a museum. This is one of those, one of those inscriptions on that fence now you see that the language written on there, that's Greek, that's important. This inscription was not written in Aramaic. It was written for a Gentile to read. Here's a translation of that inscription. No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary. And whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. Yikes. It's not so welcoming. That was there right on those places and essentially said, insiders only the rest of the way in. Now, not long ago, I was at an airport and I was walking through the terminal and I was like, man, I gotta board this plane in about 45 minutes. I need coffee. So I walk through the terminal. I find the lone Starbucks that all 100,000 of us in that terminal are to use. And I look at the line that's going maybe out of that terminal into another terminal. It's so long, okay? And I realize there is no way that I'm going to get my coffee and get on my plane. And so I hung my head in defeat and walked away from that Starbucks. And as I'm walking aimlessly, not knowing what to do with myself now in the terminal, I pass by, there's a door. Behold, a door. And around that door on either side, there are windows. And the windows are tinted just enough where you can't fully see what's inside, but you can get the gist of what's inside. And I see that there's a sign on the side that says, Airport Lounge. And I realize to enter in that gate, you have to have a membership. And I did not have one of those memberships. So there I am on the outsider as an outsider looking in the window and I'm looking at people, they're relaxing in these recliners. There's people, they're giving them what looks like champagne as they're mocking the rest of us outside. They're drinking coffee and I'm like, wait, those are not just pastries, they've got, is that bacon and eggs they have in there? Like, there's a feast set before them, those who are the insiders. And I realized if I walked in there, I would be the one responsible for the immediate death that ensued had I walked into that lounge. 
that I am not allowed to go in. Okay, there is a clear demarcation. Insiders can go in, outsiders can go out. If you are an insider and you're allowed to go in, you get all the perks of being able to walk through those doors. And the way the temple was set up is there is a barrier around the sanctuary. So whoever, so you could not get in to make a sacrifice. You could not get in to worship in the presence of the Lord. You could not get into that inner part unless you were righteous enough to get in. Because you notice what he says? He says, open the gates to me that I will come in. And he realizes he wants to thank the Lord that he has access, that he's an insider. He says, I will walk through the gates that only the righteous can walk through. They, you have to be right before the Lord to enter into that gate. And there's a whole long list. And by the way, if you're not speaking Aramaic and speaking in Greek and reading that sign, that's the first bad sign that you're um, not allowed past that under penalty of death. So he says, open the gate. That's the first major imagery that you want to see from this passage. Let's keep reading. Let's pick it up in verse 21. I want you to see the next piece of imagery here. Um, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Let's pause there again. He says, you have become my salvation. And then he gives this imagery. The stone that the builders rejected is now become the cornerstone. There's an irony. There's a twist in the story. That's how this is working out. I want you, here's the imagery. I want you to imagine a, a building yard. They're building a large building because they're using stone. Maybe they're building someone's large estate, like a mansion. Maybe they're building like a temple or, or a government building or a palace or a fortress. And you've got these builders. And they're looking at all the stone that's been gathered. And they're wanting this fortress to last or this building to last. So they're sorting through all the stones. And if any of them that are not cut right, they don't look like they're sturdy enough, they'll take that stone and they'll cast it aside. It's going to be rejected. And so he says, I want you to imagine one of those stones. The builders look at it like, no, this is no good. And they throw it outside the building site. They don't want that stone accidentally put in that building because they do not want the building to collapse. But they say the irony is that rejected stone will actually be taken and not just used in the building. It's not just, well, they reconsidered it and it's, uh, you know, Brick number 114 on one side. No, no. It be, that rejected stone actually becomes the most pivotal stone in the entire structure, the cornerstone. The cornerstone was, they did foundations differently in that time period. The cornerstone was actually a large stone in the corner that held the other walls up. Here's an example of a cornerstone that archaeologists have found. They found this in uh, ex excavations around Rome. This is from around the time of Christ. It gives you one example of how a cornerstone worked. You see all of the smaller bricks, but that cornerstone is like the anchor for that whole portion of the wall. And the fact that nearly 2,000 years later, it's still standing, it shows you how significant that cornerstone is structurally. He's saying there was a rejected stone cast aside, but it's used as the most pivotal structural stone in the entire building that the whole building's built off of. 
Now, as you are traveling along, walking through a city, you may see insignificant buildings like government buildings, monuments, churches. A lot of times they will have a ceremonial cornerstone. Here's an example of a modern ceremonial cornerstone. You can see uh, this often says like when the building was built and they sometimes have a dedication ceremony for a cornerstone that they're putting in there. But in modern times, whenever you see that, that's clearly a, it's a ceremonial stone. It's not a structural stone. It's not just saying that rejected brick becomes a significant ceremonial brick. No, that rejected brick becomes the anchor that everything is built on. It's architecturally, structurally significant. He says, you have become, there's something that was rejected that has become the key building block. And he says, you have become my salvation. Now, two more verses I want to look at, and then we'll, we'll pause. I want you to pick it up in 23 with me. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He says, Lord, you've done this. This is the psalmist. You did this. You did something. And what you did is amazing. And so today, whatever day this song is sung, we will pause and we'll rejoice as we think of what you did that, that day. Now, this psalm was sung again at Passover every year, every generation. That song would be ringing out throughout Jerusalem as they're singing, this is the day the Lord has made. There's something that's gonna be rejected that's gonna become the cornerstone, that's gonna be built, everything's gonna be built on that. It's gonna open the gates to us and we'll walk through in righteousness and they would sing this over and over and over again. And there's a message embedded in that that's not fully understood until one particular Passover happened. And that's the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem that Passover week and would be crucified on a cross on Friday, dead and buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. There's a message embedded in this psalm that becomes fully realized. And here's what it is. Jesus himself said, that psalm, it's about me. If you have any respect for the person of Jesus. You might be here in, in various places with Jesus, but if you say, well, I at least admire the person of Jesus, then I want you to hear what he said. Listen to this. John 10, nine through 10, these are his words. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What Jesus says as they've been singing this psalm over and over and over, he says, that gate that's open up to let you in, he says, I am the gate. And Jesus says, I'm open to anyone. If you enter through me, you can enter into the presence of God. Well, only the people who could who enter in are, are the righteous. I mean, how good do you have to be to enter in through the person of Jesus? He says, no. He says, he says, anyone who believes in me will not perish and have eternal life. 
He says, I am the gate. Jesus dies on the cross to pay for our sins. What that means is he takes all of my sin and your sin off of you onto himself and pays for it, defeats it, rises again from the grave. And in so doing, he takes his perfect righteousness and places it on you. And so he opens, he is the gate that you enter through. He welcomes anyone in because if you have Jesus as your savior, you're being declared righteous by God by the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. Jesus says, I am the gate. But that's not the only thing he said. He also said this, he was telling a parable and he was talking about a a vineyard. And he says, there was a man who ran a vineyard, but he was from far away. And he sent some people to go check on the people working on his vineyard, and he's talking about about Israel. And he says, the people that I sent to check on the vineyard, the people that work in the vineyard killed them. He's talking about the prophets. And he said, so the man sent his beloved son. He's talking about himself. And the beloved son goes and checks on the vineyard, and they kill his beloved son too. And at that, the crowd started to protest, saying, whoa, I don't know. What do you think he's talking about here? Because this is starting to make me uncomfortable. I don't know, Jesus. There's no way that this can be true. And then this is what Jesus said. Hear his words. He says it like this in Luke chapter 20. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. No, the one single brick that everything else is built on, the Messiah has to first be rejected and cast outside the city. It will be marred and tortured and mutilated and crucified to a cross. But in all ironies and all twists, he will rise again from the grave and he will become the foundation stone that everything else is built on. See, God had embedded these truths that would become fully realized 1,000 years later. In fact, I want you to imagine this. For generations, they'd been singing. Save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. The stone the, re- the builder rejected is, our, is the cornerstone. Open to me the gates. They'd sing this over and over. And they would sing this line over and over all throughout the week for generations. You are my salvation. So on this house over here, you are my salvation. Down this street, you are my salvation. As they're processing in, you are my salvation. And as they're singing, as it's ringing out in Jerusalem, they don't realize what they're saying. You know what the Hebrew word for salvation is in Psalm 118? Yeshua. For generations, they're singing about Yeshua, preparing for that day when the Messiah named Yeshua would arrive to save them. Here's what this passage is about it's about Jesus as a cornerstone. And what this passage is kind of inviting us to do is to not just make Jesus the ceremonial cornerstone of our life. Kind of like the official one, the stated one, but to make Jesus the structural 
foundation of our life, the true cornerstone. You know, I know that many of you here have given your lives over to Jesus and following Jesus. And you know, really on my heart is that I know that on a weekend like this, it's, um, there's really a, a mixed bag. You know, there's some, some of you here are, have questions about Jesus. Some of you are seeking about Jesus. Some of you are trying to understand more about Jesus. Some of you want to know what it means to follow Jesus. I'm so glad that you're here. Others of you might be here. I, I think about some of you, maybe you're a student and you're home from, from college and you're like, honestly, this church thing, this is really not my thing, but I'm home and they were going to church, so I'm, I'm stuck. Like I had no other options, okay? Some of you, or maybe you're a student, you're in high school, and you're like, I didn't have any options. I would have done anything else other than be here, but I'm here. Maybe you're a spouse, and maybe you are like debating what would happen on Easter, and you're spouse saying, no, I would love for us to go to church, and you're like, oh, do we really have to? And you're debating it, and church is really not my thing. I would have rather just prepared for the heat game later today, but you know, all right. You know, she won, and maybe you're here, and maybe you're just like, look, but I just want you to know, Church is, is not my thing. You know, this is not the Jesus thing. That's not, that's not my thing. I, I just, I feel like God has a word for you if that's you. So I feel like you need to know this about God. His steadfast love endures forever. And this is how Jesus described that. He said, I want you to imagine a father, a dad, a good one. And his youngest son comes to him and says, hey, dad, could I have my inheritance now? In other words, I'd rather you be dead, but that's taking too long. So could I just get all of the inheritance now? And the son says, and the father says, okay. He takes all the inheritance and he goes away to a foreign land and squanders all of it and has lost everything. And finally says to himself, what am I doing here? Maybe I can at least be a slave in my father's house. And so he goes trudging back and he's gonna say to his dad, dad, I'm no longer worthy to be your son, I'll be your slave. It's just better here as your slave than what I've done with my life. And so he begins trudging back and here's how Jesus describes the father. He says the father was scanning the horizon every day, minute by minute, waiting for his son who was lost to come back. And when he saw him a long way off, he couldn't help himself. He took off and run. Met him off out on the road. Took him up in his arms. And the son didn't get the full apology out the whole bit about I'll just be a slave. He doesn't even get that part out, but the father says, you're my son. My son's returned. And he comes in for a celebration, put a ring on his finger, put a, a robe of honor around him. My son is back and my son is restored. Do you know who you are in the father's eyes? His child, not his enemy, not his servant, his child that's lost, like he's straining the horizon, waiting for you to come home. 
The invitation to come back home is not an invitation to make Jesus your ceremonial course cornerstone, but the structural cornerstone of your life. But you might be in that position and you might be saying, look, I, <laughs> let me tell you why I can't do that. Because you said, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And apparently the Bible commands me to say that. And look, my life, I can't say that. I'm not sure I can say that. I'm not sure I believe that. Because if you knew what happened in my life, you know the pain that I've walked through, the things in my past, the things that are happening now. No, I feel like God's let me down. How could he possibly be good when the things that he's allowed to happen in my life, I can't say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. I'm not sure I can say that. And you know, if that's you, I, you're right. I can't possibly understand the disappointment, the pain that you've walked through. No one else could. And honestly, I don't know that I could square God's goodness with your pain. But I do know this, there's only one who can. As God himself. Draw close to him. Let him breathe into your life how he's still good. You say, why would I do that? Why would I take, no, no. You, you prove first that you're good, God, and then I'll take a step in your direction. But did you hear what this psalm said? To save you, he was first rejected. The sacrifice, God himself being murdered by torture on a cross for no other reason than he loves you. And he's saying, I love you. I've sacrificed for you. Come close and walk with me. And maybe you walk on that journey and let him whisper into your heart along the way, stirring your faith. You know, maybe there's others of you that say, you know, here's why I can't make Jesus the structural foundation of my life. You're, you're here maybe in this auditorium. Maybe you're sitting in overflow. Maybe you're watching online and you're saying, here, let me tell you, this is why. Because you know that sign on the fence that says, don't enter, you're not welcome here? If you knew my life, if you knew my lifestyle, if you knew what I did in my past, if you know the, the, the things in my life right now, you would say, oh yeah, you're right, you're not welcome. You'd know that that sign is for me. I am not welcome through the gate. And look, I don't know what your church experience is. I don't know what your experience has been around other Christians, but I know what Jesus says. Jesus, the friend of sinners. You know who the sinners are? It's me and it's you. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Whosoever believes in Jesus will not perish and have everlasting life. He not only tore down those signs, he actually tore the temple veil itself and said, no, I am the gate. Anyone can welcome, be welcomed in through me just as you are. That is the truth of who Jesus is and what he said. And here's the good news. Wherever you're at today, you can be reconciled to Almighty God and find salvation. 
Today you can choose to make Jesus your foundation. Today you can walk through the gates, even with your life still a mess. Today you can walk through and take his pure righteousness on you and be declared righteous. Today you can do that because here's the good news. He accepts you just as you are. He accepts me just as I am. But here's the good news. He doesn't leave us just as we are. And he welcomes us in through him to get all the benefits of being inside the gate. And you know what those benefits are? It's righteousness. Some of you say, no, no, okay, that there, that's what's holding me back. That's my thing. I'm not gonna make Jesus my foundation because the whole righteousness piece, that just sounds like a straitjacket. I wanna do what I wanna do. I wanna live the way I wanna live. I have the things that I choose to do, I, 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 and I'm gonna choose to do that, and, and look, I don't wanna have to walk in the gate and have to give up this and do this. I don't wanna jump through his hoops. But here's what Jesus has said. You've gotta reconcile that to the words of Jesus himself. When he said, no, it's the thief that's coming to steal, kill, and destroy. There is a liar. There is an enemy named Satan and the devil, and he's breathing out lies to keep you captive. He wants to keep you enslaved. He wants to hold you hostage with his lies of, no, no, this is real life. This is real life. This is what it means to live it up. When all along Jesus is saying, I'm opening up the gates for you to find freedom so that you can find life abundantly. Walk through these gates and find freedom. Think about this. Think about this logically. Every single one of us in our life, we have things that we think will bring us life, that we want freedom, but to get that, we have to have discipline. And so we pick which disciplines we want in order to have freedom. If you want to have the freedom of playing the piano however you want, you have to have the discipline to work hard at the piano. You have to choose which freedom do you want. Do you want freedom of your body feeling good and freedom of your body being able to run as far as you want and being healthy, or do you want freedom in diet? Because you're gonna have to pick one or the other. You're gonna pick your freedom and you're gonna pick what you think is life-giving. All of life is the choice between disciplines and freedoms. Doesn't it make the most logical sense to surrender those decisions to the one who invented you and has seen every human life and watched the entirety of its life and say, you tell me how to find life abundantly because you know. He's welcoming you in to the gate to find life. But here's the last person I wanna to speak to. I think there's some here that are like, look, I, everything that you're saying is fine, but..." I feel like I'm good. I'm just, I'm doing my thing. I think God knows that. I think he's good with it. I hope he's good with it. But I'm just doing my thing. I'm fine. I just don't know that I need what you're talking about. Or, or maybe like you, there was a time when you were like, yeah, I do need it, but maybe the pandemic hit threw everything up in the air, and now through the pandemic, there's new habits have formed, new priorities have settled in, and you're just like, I... I just don't know if I need it. And you know what? If your view of Jesus is to be the ceremonial cornerstone, then you're right. You don't really need it. But if Jesus is the very lifeblood, 
if he's the savior, if he's the author of life, if he holds all things together, if he's the one that speaks the very words of God, if he is the one through which all the universe is redeemed, if he is our king, if he's our savior, if he's our Lord, if he is our, the friend that sticks closer than the brother, if he is our hope, if he is the one we look to, if he's the one, if we are being made in his image, if he is the only hope we have for all of eternity, if he is the one that one day when we stand before God, when we face the, the storm of the judgment of God and we're faced with the question, am I standing on the sand, which is my way, or am I standing on the rock, which is Jesus Christ? When I face that storm of God's judgment, I want to know I'm standing on the firm foundation of, the, of, G, of Jesus. I want to stand on the rock, the one true cornerstone, the structural hope of all of my life then make Jesus the structural cornerstone of your life. Start with Jesus and build everything else on top of that. Church, can I encourage you? Christian, can I encourage you? Lost sheep, can I encourage you? Lost prodigal child, can I encourage you? Person who's strayed away from your church family, can I encourage you? Make Jesus the cornerstone that you build all of your life upon. And when you hear that refrain of Yeshua through this song, beckoning you to make him your cornerstone, know that that is signaling your one hope and your freedom. It is for freedom that he's setting you free. Return to Jesus today. Let me lead us in a time of prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to bring this to a decision point. What will you do this day? Choose today. Is Jesus your ceremonial cornerstone? Or is he your structural cornerstone that everything builds on? Make Jesus your foundation. I think there's some people watching online right there. Maybe you're in your living room, at your desk, watching on your phone, whatever it may be. God's brought you to this moment. Make a decision. Choose today. Give your life to Jesus. Follow him. Let everything else pass away, but start with Jesus. I think there's some of you sitting over there in overflow. But God did not want you to miss this moment because he's saying, no, no longer just let me be the ceremonial cornerstone. It's not just the official title. No, it's the foundation of your life. Choose today to make Jesus your cornerstone. That's what it means to be saved. It's all or nothing with Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here in this auditorium. Maybe it would not have been your choice to be here today. You'd have done something else. Could it be your father's been scanning the horizon wanting his child back, wanting his son back, wanting his daughter back, and he's welcoming you back with open arms to accept you just as you are. Walk through those gates. The name of the gate is Yeshua, it's Jesus. Make him the foundation of your life. If you wanna make that statement today, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer right now. 
God hears you. Make this your prayer to him. Just silently repeat these words up to God. Let him hear it. Say, God, silently in your heart, say, God, I don't want to make you just my ceremonial cornerstone anymore. You are my foundation, Jesus, because you're my savior. You died for me. You rose again. I am forgiven. I make you my king. I'll follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.